Morning, everyone. Ready to get in the Word? Yeah, let's do it. Revelation chapter 3, continuing to move through the letters. If you're new to the Bible, it is the last book in the Bible in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is the majority, which sometimes we forget. <laughs> Old Testament's like that big. New Testament's smaller. Um, so we don't want to neglect the Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament and probably the last book to be written in the New Testament in the early to mid-90s, we think. Jesus dying in 33 AD, so there's that season with the apostles um, up until John, the apostle John, the last apostle to die, we're pretty confident, uh, who wrote this book as he was caught up into heaven and caught up into a dreamlike state, seeing the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, so... Um, he's, he's having a vision at this moment. This is a vision he's having that Jesus is revealing and saying, write these things down that I'm saying. Um, and the, the, the visions that John receives will progress as we continue to move into chapter four and beyond. Um, but this one in particular, Jesus, he's addressing his churches both at that time and for all time. Um, so because the words are from Jesus and his words will never pass away, they're timeless For us, they're always timely. Amen? So let's read, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we heard this morning, what an opportunity to bless those who are out on the front lines of the mission to make disciples to the ends of the earth. I pray this next weekend would be a sweet, encouraging time for them as they come and that our church would be a refuge and a hospital for them to be healed and nourished and fed and cared for and then sent back out. Holy Spirit, we pray for a great work um, over this weekend. We ask you to move in surprising and delightful ways. Move through our people. Shape hearts to care and love and express the love of Christ to them. And Lord, we pray now for this word today. Uh, We pray that it would find a place in our hearts. That we would be open. That we would have ears to hear what you are saying to us as a church. And we pray for those churches that are dying, 
churches that are on the ropes, that are, are dwindling and diminishing spiritually. We pray for revival. We pray you would not abandon them. We pray they would repent and turn and not be ashamed of you, embarrassed of you and the gospel anymore. We ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen. We come to the fifth of the seven letters from Jesus to his churches today. Last week we saw Thyatira was compromising with the world. Um, They wanted to keep their jobs more than they wanted to keep in step with Jesus and his word. This week we have another kind of church, a dying church. Sardis isn't really compromising with the world, they are becoming the world. indistinguishable from the world. What this is, is nominal Christianity. I don't know how many of you have heard that term. Christian in name only. You call yourself a Christian, but you're not internally in the way that counts. And and have you been in a church like this, a nominal Christian church on a Sunday or at a funeral or at a wedding? Well, you're sitting there and you're like, what is this? What am I doing here? I I could be wrong, but I thought I saw church on the marquee, on the sign outside. (laughs) Because the sermon's almost over and we haven't opened the Bible yet. I haven't heard a Bible verse, or if I did, it was like in passing. And we've moved on. So what is this? What are we doing here? Did I go to a town hall meeting? Or I thought, am I wrong to think that the gospel should be preached, taught at a Christian service? Because I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Have you ever been in a church like that where you felt like that? What is happening? There's no passion, there's no life, there's no energy. Sadly, I think most of us have experienced that. And I don't mean to say it's all about what you feel in the church. There can be a bad side of that, of like, I just don't feel the spirit here. I don't know what's going on. I just don't feel it, man. That's not what I'm saying. This is objective. This is objective. There's no life, Jesus is saying. It's almost like going to the DMV. It's like there are things happening, you know, there's people there, there's stuff happening, but you wouldn't say that joy was the main experience you, you underwent there at the DMV. You wouldn't say, man, there was just so much life today at the Department of Motor Vehicles. That's like a church like Sardis. This is a church like that. There's no passion, there's no life, there's no energy. You're not getting a taste of heaven on a Sunday, or at least you hope not, because then I don't really want to go to heaven if this is what it's like. It breaks my heart to hear those stories and to experience those things, but I think most churches, majority of churches, let's say, are like that. It's one of the reasons I wanted to be a pastor. And that, that motivates me. That fires me up because it hurts God's people. It hurts God's people and it doesn't glorify Him. 
These are churches that might have nice buildings, nice people, nice reputation in town. But Jesus says, nope, I see through it. I see what's really going on here. You're dead. You might have everyone else fooled, but you don't have me fooled. So we want to talk about the problem and the promise. There's no praise here today. Uh, and we want to consider how churches end up like Sardis and, and be careful and be on guard that we don't end up there because but for the grace of God go we. And we need to be on alert and we need to be on guard. We need to listen to what God has to say to us. So the problem, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's your first wake-up call. Sardis, the person you should be most concerned about what they think is not Bill at Second Street Diner. It's not Janice at the community center that you run into every day. It's not Ed at your, at, you know, the, the department head at the college that you really care what they think. No, it's Jesus Christ. That's who you should care most about what they think. But in Sardis, they're very concerned about being accepted, well-liked in the community. They're not concerned enough about what Jesus thinks. And yet, he is the sovereign one. He is the king of the universe. He holds them in his hand. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So that's not a compliment. It's like saying, Every, everyone told me you were really nice. And then I started to get to know you. Like, no, no, that's not a compliment. Their strength, oh, yeah, nice people in that church. Yeah, good church. There's, yeah, yeah. Is their weakness. That good reputation that they have is the problem. The city of Sardis was similar to the church in Sardis, historically. In that day, it had an impressive reputation. One end of the city was built on top of a massive hill, a 1,500-foot precipice that went straight up. So from a military point of view, this was impregnable. It was a fortress. There was a catchphrase in that day of uh, capturing Sardis, which meant you, you did the impossible. The city also had gold dust in its springs, making it very wealthy. They were the first to mint silver and gold coins. They claimed to have invented the process for dyeing wool. Uh, they had a lot you know, going for them, but it was all in the past. The reputation was impressive, but the city was dying. It was living in the past. Its glory was in the past, and the same was true for the church. They might be saying in their church, man, you remember that softball league that we had? That was great. That was amazing. Remember that citywide meal that we hosted and we fed? It was like 500 people. That was awesome. Remember that one Sunday where we, man, it was filled and it was great and had a lot of people here? 100-year anniversary, man, that was fun. Now, are those things bad? No. They're good. Those are good things. The problem is when it becomes the identity of your church. 
This is what we're about. This is who we are. If you're always talking about in your church things that happened in the past, you're probably dying. If it's always about what we did that time or that, that year or that, you're probably dying. But if you're remembering God's faithfulness and also excited about what he's doing in the present and what he will do in the future, it probably means you're alive. This church was focused on the past. They were living in the past. They were resting on what they had done, not what God was doing and would do in their midst. And when we talk about death, spiritual death, let me, let me say this. In your spiritual life, there is a difference between death and dryness. Every Christian goes through seasons of dryness. Sometimes it's just really hard to read the Bible to pray, to be in Christian fellowship. It's hard. And, and that's not necessarily a sin. Uh, I think the longer you live, the longer you're a Christian, you recognize that you go through those seasons and periods. Maybe something happens in your life that's really hard. Maybe you're hurt by someone. Maybe you don't even know why. It, it just happens. I heard of a pastor counseling someone recently who they had gone through something hard. They had been um, hurt by a church. They had some, some family things going on related to spiritual life and, and Christianity. And they told the pastor in counseling, I, I, like, I feel pressure that, to read my Bible and pray, and I know I'm supposed to and I want to, but I just like can't do it. And he said, don't even worry about that. Focus on coming to church. Just show up at church for a year. I don't want you worrying about whether you're reading your Bible, praying, how much, any of that. And I think that can be really good counsel, depending on the situation. Sometimes when we're going through something and we feel a, a, a dryness with the Lord, we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We can feel a lot of guilt. That I should be doing more. I should want this. I should feel like opening my Bible and reading it. And, and sometimes we just go through seasons where it's hard. And that's okay. The Lord understands. He's patient. Here's the thing. If it bothers you at all, if you long to have renewed fellowship with the Lord, that's a good sign. You're alive. You're alive. If you're going through a, a season of dryness and you don't care, you're not coming to seek counseling, you're not asking the Lord in some sense to restore you, you're not longing to be renewed in communion with Him, you might be dead. If it doesn't bother you to be distant from God, that's not a good sign. But understand the distinction. So that as a Christian, a true believer, there may be times when, you know, you know you should want to want to, but you don't. And so taking acts of faith, like just coming to church and showing up and receiving from the Lord, that's huge. Jesus is telling these so-called Christians that they're flirting with death. You're flirting. 
You're way too comfortable with a dry spiritual life. You're way too comfortable with everyone just thinking you're a Christian without the substance in your life. Verse 2. He says, wake up. You need an awakening. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete or, or fulfilled in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. So you heard the gospel. You received the truth, but you lost your grip on it. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So Jesus borrows his own language from Matthew 16, Matthew 24. To warn Sardis, he will come like a thief. And I think in this case, he's probably not talking about his second coming. As he probably is in those texts. He's, he's saying... Before my second coming, in some sense, at some time, I'm going to come against you in judgment because I'm not happy with what's happening in my church. It has my name on it. I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, you kind of don't want to find out. Just imagine hearing this on a Sunday morning. Like if I was reading this as a pastor and it was talking about you, like specifically Talk about an awkward moment, okay? You're, you're listening to this like, you're dying, you're about to die, I'm going to come against you and judge you, says Jesus. You would think that would make an impact? Uh, we don't know how they responded, but we can decide how we respond. That's what we can control because we don't want to end up here. Do we? We don't want to end up a nominal church, a church in name only, a Christian church. So what are some warning signs that a church is dying? What are some red flags that, that a church is declining? What are things we need to be aware of and watch out for so we don't end up here? Number one, you stop believing in real conversion. You stop believing in real conversion. If you start thinking a Christian is someone who's nice, believes in God, and prays occasionally, I say my prayers, you're in trouble. If you start thinking a Christian is some, someone is a Christian simply because they're part of a Christian family, you're in trouble. Great blessing to be part of a Christian family, absolutely, the Lord works through families, but if you think that's all it takes to be a Christian, you're in trouble. If you start thinking someone is a Christian simply because they raised their hand at an at a event, they, they walked the aisle, signed a card at, at an altar call, or they just got put on the membership roll at some point, you're in trouble. If you think someone is a Christian simply because they got baptized, you're in trouble. If you think someone is a Christian simply because they go to church, great church attendance, faithful every week, you're in trouble. I think it was Lloyd-Jones who said, going to church no more makes you a Christian than putting a cat in an oven makes them a biscuit. And as much as that image warms my heart, 
on what? Whoa, whoa. That's crossing the line to you people? This is like heaven on earth. You put a mangy cat in an oven and you get a cookie out? What kind of amazing thing is that? You know, there's some things that aren't true, but you really want them to be true. You know what I'm saying? And that may be true for Christianity. We want to believe that bringing our kids to church or someone just going to church just kind of makes them a Christian. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. I've been at many a funeral where all of those things or some of those things are put forward as great evidence as to why we know that this person is a, in a better place. Yeah? Now, that may be true. I mean, yeah, get baptized. Yeah, go to church. These are good things. But if that's what we say, we know they're in heaven because they got baptized. We know they're in heaven because every Sunday they were in that chair. We know they're in heaven because at six years old they walked the aisle and signed the card. If that's what we think is the evidence or the proof or the absolute certainty why they're in heaven, we're in trouble. John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's let that sink in. Cannot. Unless you are born from above, born of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so how do you want to know someone's a Christian? How do you want to know, how do you know someone's in Christ? He or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not good enough to be nice. You have to be new. And only God can do that. Paul says in Galatians 6, neither circumcision nor not circumcision counts for anything. doesn't matter what you do. But new creation, that's it. That's what matters. You have to be a new creation, made new from above by God. So if you have not been made new, you need to ask God to make you new. Change my heart. When we stop believing in real biblical conversion, we're in trouble. Because what happens, not only is a church filled with people who aren't actually Christians, but then you get put on leadership. You get put into positions of authority and power, and you might not even be a Christian. Don't think it doesn't happen. Oh, it happens. Churches being led by people who don't even know Jesus. Number two, stop investing in people. You stop investing in people. Church becomes more about programs than people. Everyone's happy to show up at an event, set up some chairs, give an offering. But when you ask them to actually invest in someone's life, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. I, I got this going on, that going on. It's just not a great time for me. Knew a man at another church who had a good reputation in the church. He taught Sunday school. He's well thought of in the community. And I thought, okay, here's somebody I could trust. I, I approached him on Sunday. 
I said, hey, th- this person's struggling over here, and I know that you know them. Would you mind just checking in on them and giving them a call, uh, praying for them? That, that would be a big help. We're trying to kind of move toward this person. And he just looked at me and said, no. I said, yeah, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away. And I'm like, <laughs> stunned, you know. Is that Christianity? Is that what love looks like? I'm confused, and I was confused. Because I thought, based on reputation, that was not the response I was going to get. All of us have to be willing to invest in people, Christian, non-Christian, to care, to interrupt our precious schedules for the good of another person who needs us. And when God prompts your heart, when you feel in your heart someone like comes to mind, when you wake up at 3 in the morning and someone's on your mind, that's probably the Holy Spirit like shoving you. Go to that person. Reach out to that person. But what happens is we quench the Spirit because, well, I got this going on, and I got that going on. There's no way I could do it. I got... I got to work, and I got to I got to take the kids here, and I got to. We have to invest in people. That's what the kingdom of God is about: make disciples. Not merely showing up at church events where I have a very comfortable distance between me and everyone else. You don't really know me. I don't really know you, but we show up and we do things together. A church that stops investing in people is dying. Number three, you stop praying. Maybe not formally, but there ceases to be a hunger for the Spirit of Jesus to work in surprising and powerful ways. You still might have some prayer sprinkled in, but, but you really deactivate the Spirit The Holy Spirit is central to our life as a church, not my planning, not the staff, not the leadership, not any of that. The Holy Spirit is the center of things. And when you stop praying, you deactivate Him. Now, we would all say prayer is important, I'm sure. But why does this happen? Because it does happen. Materialism. Um, Money makes things happen, doesn't it? And I didn't have to pray about that. I'm in control. If I have money, personally, as a church, you know, it's, it's, we talk about it as elders. It, it, it's not healthy spiritually that we have a lot of money just sitting in a bank account. We need to be Spartan. We need to be depending on God. We need to be deploying the resources for the kingdom and praying. Cynicism. Well, what good does prayer do anyway? Wouldn't that, have ha- wouldn't that have happened if I would have prayed or not? You know? I mean, I didn't pray the other day and this good thing happened, so really what's the point? Cynicism sets in. Managerialism. Is that a word? I don't know, but I, I'm going to use it. Basically, if you plan well, you got the church humming, it's, it's really, you know, logistically sound, the sermons are well organized, everything's all and Your church has power. Church doesn't have power. 
because you stopped praying. Begin with prayer, end with prayer, linger in prayer, pray until you pray, pray until you pray, and all the ministries of the church will crackle with the energy of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of God. Number four, you stop trusting the word. So common. So common. You get embarrassed by God. There might be Bibles in the pews, but we don't actually use them. I mean, come on. This is the 21st century. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's a nice artifact. It, it's, it's an interesting, you know, piece of history, the Bible. But it's a decoration, really. It's decorative. In our church. Uh, it's nice to look at. Nice to talk about. I don't think it's as common as it used to be. But I'm getting guessing some of you have fine china sets. Yes? Anyone? Please. Someone have a... Yeah, okay. Thank you. I figured um, probably not some of these folks uh, uh, won't have that. But, you know, you got it for your wedding or something like that. You At some point in your life, you didn't really ask for it. But somebody gave it to you. Anyway, I don't know what to do with this. So you put it in the hutch, and it sits there, and it's nice to talk about. It's nice to look at. Oh, you know, Aunt Glenda gave us this china, and isn't it nice and pretty? But you don't use it. You don't use it. For nominal churches like Sardis, the Bible is like that. It's decorative. It's just a decoration. We don't trust it. We don't use it. It just sits on the shelf. And you hear it in the preaching and teaching of many churches. Well, Francis Grimke, who was an African-American pastor in the early 20th century in the United States, he wrote one of my absolute favorite books on preaching. Um, and in it, he says this. There is a great difference between preaching that merely entertains that holds the attention for a passing moment, and preaching that satisfies, that ministers to the deeper spiritual needs of the soul. Never mind how brilliant a man may be, how striking his oratory. If what he says does not minister to the soul life, if the thoughts of his hearers are not turned Godward and heavenward, it is of no value. It is nothing but sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Nothing can take the place of the plain, simple, earnest exposition of the word. The Bible, the gospel, this is all we have to offer. And it's all we really need. This is the only meal we can serve that's of any value. And yet, spiritually, it's the only meal we need. If we would just trust it, if the church would just trust the word of God. You pray for these churches, because they're probably in your mind right now. Pray they would trust the word of God.
because what does the Holy Spirit use to powerfully work? Me entertaining you? Funny stories? Interesting, topical, you know, what's happening in the world today stuff? No, the Word of God. That's what the Spirit uses. That's what feeds the people. It's like rain that comes down on the earth and makes things grow. You know, you can take a bag of flour and throw it out on the grass. Nothing's going to happen. It looks funny. It's interesting. It's like, wow, what's that? It's not going to do anything. Praise God as I'm thinking about this passage for our church. 137 years. Imperfect, but faithful. Faithful to the word of God, and I pray by God's grace for 100 more. Wouldn't that be sweet? If our grandkids, kids, grandkids here, in this church, there's faithful teaching and preaching, God's word is still held as trustworthy and authoritative. <laughs> it's a miracle. That's the problem. Now the promise. What promise does Jesus give? Verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there are some true Christians in this church. It's dying, but there's still some life left in a few Christians, and that's a hard position to be in. <laughs> it's difficult because really you only have two options. One, you stay and you try to work for change, which is hard because you're probably not getting anywhere. You're probably you know, hitting a wall, or you leave. And, and sometimes there are good reasons to leave a church. Now, I think, generally speaking, we leave way too easy from churches, uh, especially if you're in a, in a town that, well, I can go over here, I can go over there, I can go over there. I've got all these options. You know, I'm the consumer. I just kind of go where my needs are being met. Uh, we leave way too easy. But sometimes, for a really good reason, you need to leave. And that's hard, too, because you feel like, well, if I'm not there, who's going to be the good voice? Who's going to push for the Bible? Because if we all leave, then the church is definitely dead. It's a painful, pressurized situation. Some of you have been in it. But Jesus tells them they're worthy because they haven't given in. They haven't gone along with everyone else. Go along to get along. It's always hard to be a minority. The kids asked me this week, uh, um, are most people in the world Christians? And no, we're always a minority. We always will be. And it's hard to be a minority. It, kids, it's hard at school. It's hard to be a real Christian at school. I don't care where you go to school, public school, private school, Christian school, homeschool. It's hard. It's hard to be a real Christian because it's hard to be kind when it's cool to be mean. I remember it was cool to be mean. It's hard to use godly language when it's cool to cuss. Because, you know, I don't care. Say whatever. It's hard to stop and pray for someone on the playground. 
But you know that's right. You know that's good, but it's hard. It's hard to stand up for truth when it's unpopular and you'll get made fun of. But kids, hear Jesus' words. He sees you. He sees you. You might get laughed at by your friends, but he's not laughing. He's telling you you're worthy to walk with him. I think that sounds a lot better than being approved of and accepted by fools in your school. That Jesus wants to walk with you and talk with you and tells you you're worthy of my kingdom, young man, young woman. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So let's talk about the book of life. Let's unpack it just briefly. Before God created the world, he knew that his good creation would fall into sin. He knew there would be a fall because of our rebellion. He knew in Adam's fall, each one of us, everyone born after Adam, would be sinful by nature and by choice. And so in eternity, out of that pool of sinful humanity, so understand, and this is important, everyone is guilty. Everyone is sinful. So time hasn't even begun. This is just in the mind of God. Good creation, fall. Now all of humanity, everyone that will ever live, is sinful. Out of that pool, he decides to choose some for life. He predestines some for life. Graciously. Graciously. And this is part of the gospel. This is part of the good news. That God determined, knowing you would willingly choose sin, and rebellion against him to say, in Jesus Christ, my son, who I'm going to send and die for those sinful people, I'm going to choose some for eternal life. I'm going to make sure that at some point in their life, the gospel comes to them. You remember when it happened. And I'm going to send my spirit out among all the earth, and I'm going to change hearts so that their heart is changed, and they willingly want to believe. They come to Jesus willingly. I'm going to make sure of it. And then I'm going to love them to the end. And the best way to make sure that you're elect is to believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus. And maybe that needs to happen for someone today. You want to know, don't, don't worry, am I elect, am I not elect? Trust in Jesus. Believe upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Repent and believe that he died for your sins and he rose on the third day. And all those that he chose and determined to save, he wrote in a book, a roster of life in heaven. No one deserved it. All we deserved was to have our name and all our sins recorded in the book of judgment and then be judged according to them. That's what we deserve. But this is the beautiful doctrine of election. It's so comforting. 
assuring. Your name, once it's in, it doesn't get removed. God doesn't change his mind. Once Jesus makes you his own, he will never unmake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His heart will love you to the end. As one theologian said it, God can never stop loving you because he never started. Do you believe that? He's always loved you if you're among his elect, if you're a Christian. Because it was before time. Hard to imagine. So when Jesus says, I will not blot your name out of the book of life, he's not saying that to make you wonder if you're going to have your name blotted out. Like, well, I, I did pretty good this week, so my name must be in. And then, and then wow, it's been a rough one. <laughs> I've sinned a lot. Is my name blotted out? Do I, can I get back in? That's not the point. The point is to assure you and give you confidence. This is a promise. If you stick with him to the end, you're going to be saved. If you conquer, you will be rewarded. If you trust him alone, even when it's hard, you prove that you are elect. If you conquer, you prove that your name is in the book of life. When people claiming to be Christians, like here in Sardis, drift away from God, it's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they prove they never had it. Time always tells. Time will tell. And that's why we need to keep hearing these words again and again so that we persevere and endure to the end. Proving, in fact, we are elect. It's God's work, not ours. It's His choice. But we're called to persevere. We're called to stick with Jesus. And there will be a moment on the last day when this book will be open. And your name, Christian, will be read with every person who has ever lived looking on publicly. Jesus will confess your name to the Father and to his angels. He's with me. She's with me. It's right here in my book. I do not count their sins against them because they were counted against me, Jesus will say. What a moment that will be. Can you imagine? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a book Meaning, once it's written in heavenly ink, it cannot be erased. Lord, we praise you that on account of nothing in us, you chose to save us. Who are we? And yet you want us confident of that. You want us believing. You want us sure that yes, I will be there on the last day with Jesus. I will hold firm. So, Lord, grant us grace to run the race, to finish strong, to not give up, to not grow cold, to not want acceptance from the world more than we want acceptance from you. We ask humbly, Lord, 
in your name. Amen.